Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Riley, one of your hosts today. And I'm Deja, a new host to Life Out Loud, ready to see what these new authors have to share with us and all of you. And I'm Karen, also particularly excited for this one. It's our fifth episode of the fourth season, entitled Family Ties. I'm Rebecca, also one of your hosts today. And in this episode, two young authors navigate the familial ties that bind them to those closest, as they explore whether it's true that blood is thicker than water, and whether or not that matters to them anyway. And I'm Sarah. Lastly, I'm Sadie. Hi, everyone. Now let's get into the first story of the night. This piece is by a new author to Life Out Loud, Sashiella. Sashiella is a Guyanese native who migrated to the United States when she was 13 years old. For the past eight years, she's learned about the New York state of mind and developed multiple facets of who she actually is in a place filled with fast-paced walkers. Sashiella is currently a senior at John Jay College, majoring in criminology with a double minor in English and psychology. What's she going to do with it? She has yet to decide. But what's certain is her love of working with children, writing, and cooking, or baking cinnamon rolls. When she isn't worried about classes and getting her homework done, she's working as a tutor at John Jay's Writing Center. On the weekends, she catches up on all the sleep she missed during the week or enjoys Thai food with her loved ones. A warning that this story touches on very sensitive subjects and that this may be difficult to hear. So listener discretion is advised. Thank you, Riley and Karen. Now let's take a listen to Sashiella's piece entitled Family Man. My dad, Barry, with his round basketball-like stomach and a face carved thick with dimples, stands at 5 foot 10 inches. His round face complements his bare, shiny scalp and his goatee, which runs across the top of his lips, then down the sides, only to connect again at his chin is spotted with pointy hairs that poke and scratch and sting my cheeks whenever he kisses me. His voice is stern, his English broken. He's a typical Guyanese that says flim instead of film. (sighs) Before we moved to New York, he was a driver, a taxi driver at first, who picked up passengers anywhere and took them wherever they needed to go. The dainty yellow car was his sister's who'd rent it out to him. He knew the ins and outs of Guyana, which made him good at what he did. My dad was never much of a scholar, but if there was one thing he knew how to do was count money and hustle. (sighs) I'm a family man, he loved saying. Before we lived with him in a pawn shop, we lived with my aunt and cousins in Brooklyn. My dad was eager to earn money, but he couldn't have us living with him in the store. So we stayed with my aunt Shelly instead. When my aunt and her children grew tired of my brother and I sleeping on their floor, eating their food, and using too much of their hot water, they shunned us. They hid their food and other things they didn't want us to have in their bedrooms. My cousins laughed at our holy hand-me-down clothing and gave us the cold shoulder like their mother did. I was mad, but mostly, I was embarrassed. Why are you wasting his money? He just got his children here. I was eavesdropping, but they were speaking loud enough for us to hear. Y'all should just come and live with me, my dad said, so you don't got to hear them cross his talk scunt. So, we did. I'm a family man, he loved saying. 
When he first moved into the pawn shop, it was supposed to be a way for him to work longer hours and to make more money. So he barely got around to see my brother and I. The pawn shop was his baby. It stood on the side of a dingy beige apartment building in Brooklyn on a street where crackheads roamed around with stolen items like shampoo and body wash with the Rite Aid stickers still on them. While guys in puffy jackets stood on the corners eyeing whoever walked by, even 15-year-old me. Late nights were always a good time for people to bring in jewelry that they found or borrowed to be sold. My brother and I would hear them at all hours, stumble in, pulling the door hard, which jingled the wind chime and woke us up every time. Ayo, pa, I got something good for you, they'd say, slightly excited. The customers didn't know that we were there. Our home then was a small area in the pawn shop that the customers couldn't see. My room was a small rectangular area behind the front counter. Behind the brown curtains that many customers faced as they haggled with my dad was two queen-size beds crammed next to each other, a brown suede and leather recliner, and a small table with our microwave and snacks set nearby. We usually shoved snacks in the microwave or refrigerator to prevent any critters from lurking amongst us. It kept them out of our food, but it didn't really stop the rats from invading our space. We basically shared it. Since the pawn shop was a business rental, we didn't have a shower. Instead, my dad created somewhat of a contraption, which was made up of a shower-like floor half a foot off the ground. It had pipes that ran the dirty water out to God knows where, and a removable silver shower head attached to the sink. The pipes would fall out of its groove easily. Every day, it was a chore not to get the floor too wet or to even make the pipe shift out of place. He'd say, I don't want to glue them just in case an inspector come because he'll see it and so we live in here. My dad promised that opening SNK Golden Diamond Inc. would mean a better home for us one day. My mother, who'd be on the way to New York soon, trusted his plan. We all did, at first. But what he hadn't set our plan on was business being slow. We also never planned on him squandering money on horse races either. <sighs> I'm a family man, he loved saying. On the days that I was home, my dad capitalized on it, and he went to the Gold and Diamond District in Manhattan to sell whatever gold or silver he had purchased. He did so to replenish both his bank account, that was bled dry from betting on horses every day, and to put back money into the store in case someone came in with something big. You're wasting money on fucking horses, my mother yelled through the phone from my granny's little house in Guyana. Got me children sleeping on ground and gambling away any money you get. Helen, you're stressing me out, he'd say, as if betting on useless horses on his laptop would one day help him win big. He never won. <sighs> I'm a family man, he loved saying. I dreaded the days that he went to the city. It meant that my brother and I would run the shop when we both just really wanted to catch up on sleep. I feared that an inspector would come. What would we say to Mr. Inspector Guy? Were kids even allowed to work in a pawn shop? I worried about my dad getting in trouble if we were ever caught living there. Where else would we even go? Otherwise, I wasn't afraid to run the pawn shop. From the beginning, my father had shown us how to test jewelry to see if it was real. We'd carefully scratch pieces of gold onto a file, then rub it on a block of stone to make a mark. The scratches on the stone would look like long streaks of bright yellow and brown. Then, he'd make us brush different acids to see if the mark vanished. If it didn't, we were in business. 
At 15 years old, I had acquired a new skill, but I wasn't quite sure how to add it on my resume. <sighs> I'm a family man, he loved saying. My dad is the last of seven children. He always wanted my brother and I to be close since he never really got along with his siblings. Whenever my brother and I fought over things like what channel the TV should be on, he squashed it quickly. When I was a little boy, he'd say, me and my sisters and brother never got along. We bickered and fight, and I don't want that for the two of y'all. You hear me? He'd always end in a harsher tone, which meant it was time to comply. Yes. Yes, who? Yes, daddy. <sighs> I'm a family man, he loved saying. Even though there was never much money, he tried hard to ensure we all went out to eat on the weekends, a valued tradition. We'd head out to a pizza hut, a Golden Coast, or Church's Chicken for a night out. And regardless of the money he made during the week, from driving his taxi around Guyana, he'd always make sure he had enough for us to go out as a family. I always thought we went out because my dad wanted us to bond, or because he thought we deserved a reward for doing so good in school. My mother, though, thought it was his way of proving to people, or maybe to himself, that he was, in fact, a family man. What kind of family man you could be? My mother said to him countless times as she confronted him about flirting with other women right in front of us. Sometimes, he'd even stop and spin his head around, staring at women and whatever asses were attached to them. As a child, I wasn't really sure what he was doing, so I just stood there, holding onto his hands until he had his fill. I'm a family man, he loved saying. One weekend, we begged for pizza. So my dad drove us about an hour away from our home in Guyana just so we can have it. At the Pizza Hut on Vasiljan Road in Georgetown, we sat outside at a white plastic table under an umbrella, stuffing our faces. Within 20 minutes, nothing remained except one lonely slice of barbecue chicken pizza, our favorite. I couldn't finish it. So my dad assured me that we'd take it home for tomorrow. I was excited and relieved that he said so. I wouldn't have to wait another week or two just for pizza. My dad didn't grow up with the luxury of always knowing what he'd eat the next day, no less to even have enough for leftovers. So I knew he was proud of moments like this, moments with leftover food. He used to say, when I was a little boy, I remember daddy would bring home a glass of Coca-Cola and I had to share it with Shelly, Roy, and Janice. Excuse me, a rusty voice reached our pizza table before I even saw who was talking. Can you help me get something to eat? A dark-skinned woman who'd noticed the lonely slice looked at my dad with pleading eyes. But since it was technically mine, my dad looked at me as if to say, do you want to give it away? He'd raised his eyebrows and waited. The look I gave back showed him the answer. I wanted the slice. He laughed at my selfishness and gave the beggar some change, shaking his head at me. I knew the change couldn't buy much, which made me feel badly. But what made me feel even worse was that I knew I failed the test. He was giving me a chance to show him who I was, and I'd shown him. As we packed up the slice, he told me, you know, we could have just buy more pizza and take home. I hadn't thought about that. He didn't give me a speech about being more generous. He didn't have to. <sighs> I'm a family man, he loved saying. I just stood outside of the silver gates of my home in my pajamas. Bundles of large bags stuffed to the rim with clothes and anything else that belonged to my mother and I. He kicked us out. 
So we headed to the one place we always went to when this happened, my granny's house. After napping for a few hours, the flashbacks from the early morning encounter looked blurry and blue and wooden like the walls did in my room, while I lay pretending to black out the screams and shouts that houses away could have heard. Their fuck yous flew out like it was their common hellos and goodbyes. Later that night, he came over to talk things through with my mother and brought my brother with him. Of course, us kids were banished to my uncle's house a few steps away to sit until the grown-ups, my grandparents and my parents, worked things through. I'm a family man, he loved saying. My mother's eyes drooped of tiredness and skin dented and scarred from the blow she encountered the night of their argument. She'd confronted him about a woman she thought he was sleeping with a woman that lived only a village away. As long as I can remember, my mother always confided in me. She'd tell me stories of how he'd wobble home drunk. My mother expressed her frustration of his womanizing, his coming home smelling like Elizabeth Taylor perfume and hickeys all over his neck to prove it. She'd tell me of her friends who'd saw him at outings with other women when he told her he was just out working late. She'd confront him. I hear about you and your little whore in prospect. She'd cry whenever she was angry, but as a child, tears only meant sadness to me. As a reward for confronting him that night, he'd beaten her with a pipe. Vouching that we'd stand up for her, my brother and I ran out after the first blow. She wailed and called out his name. Barry! Turning around to see us, he yelled at us for even leaving our room. Go back inside. What y'all come here for? He shouted using all of his strength, his voice cracking as he couldn't holler any louder. I went back inside. Her cries heightened as he hit her thighs some more with the plastic pipe. I'm a family man, he loved saying. I'm not clipping your damn toenail, my mother yelled shortly after she glanced at us playing with our Christmas presents. Christmas back in Guyana was the best time of year. My mother and I would spend time in the kitchen cooking and baking fruitcakes, which sprayed the entire house with a fruity rump scent. One Christmas morning, our tree was flooded with gifts, which has never happened before. That evening, I was sitting on the couch with my shiny new keyboard next to me, and my brother was on the floor playing with his. Pushing random keys on the keyboard, I was distracted by what my parents were snapping about. Helen, I asked you nicely, please clip it. My father cocked his leg on the handle of the chair, giving us a better view of his toes. Upon his second denied request, my father demanded that my brother get his cutlass, a large machete that he kept under the matras of the bed. The blade was long and curved at the tip. In Guyana, it was normal for people to have cutlasses lying around. I barely paid attention, just kept hitting random keys on my new keyboard at an ill rhythm. My brother handed the blade to my father. Please clip my toenail, he said to her, this time with weapon in hand. No, she replied. Pointing the cutlass inches away from her, he swung it. He just started swinging it over and over again. I stopped playing the keyboard and buried my face into it. But I could almost still hear it in my head as he hit her exposed left arm over and over and over with a flat blade. Barry! Barry, stop. My uncle rushed to rescue my mother from whoever the man with the cutlass was. My aunt and uncle, who'd lived with us, were downstairs in the kitchen, probably eating pepper pot and the cakes my mother and I baked. 
They must have heard the screams. The next day, the entirety of my mother's left arm was filled with gashes of all lengths, pink and bruised and oozing. I didn't remember seeing her bleed at all that night. <sighs> I'm a family man, he loved saying. When we first moved to New York and his family had shunned him and us, we begged Nanny and Mr. Hussein, my dad's former brother-in-law's parents, to let us stay with them. We lived in the den of their homes for about six months. My brother and I shared a queen-size bed while my dad slept on the floor right next to the bed. With no actual qualifications and not even finishing primary school in Guyana, finding a job that paid my dad well enough was a hassle. Every night, he'd come home with a sad frown, and my brother and I knew that his day of walking around and searching to do anything to get some money was unsuccessful. <sighs> I'm a family man, he loved saying. Even though we don't talk much anymore, I still sometimes think about that night he finally found his first job in New York. It was almost a year since we moved from Guyana. He'd come home smiling, his dimples pushing inward. That night, he found a pawn shop who'd consider him for employment. The owners were Guyanese like us and recognized his eagerness to make money. During the days, and sometimes overnight, he'd work for them at the counter, buying anything with worth. At the end of the week, they'd give him about $130. I often wondered if he ever imagined about a year later, we'd all be staying in a pawn shop and not an apartment like he initially told us about, not living the American dream that we were once sold on, or that we'd even live in a pawn shop for almost three years. On the days he got paid, He'd come home early with a box of Chinese fried chicken and fries smothered in a lusciously sweet pink sauce. As a family, we sat together on the queen-size bed in the den, crouched over the box in front of us. He'd always make sure that my brother and I ate first to our heart's desire. He'd then eat whatever scraps and smaller pieces of chicken were left. Back then, he'd always say he was full, even when he wasn't. Wow, that's oh such an God. interesting piece. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for Thank having you. me. So that was such a great story. And quickly, before we start, we just want to say to everyone listening that if you or someone you know is subjected to domestic violence, there are resources available to you, many of which can be anonymous. For one, there's a National Domestic Violence Hotline, which can be reached at 800-799-723, or for Spanish speakers, at 800-942-6908. Yes, this is the 24-7 hotline that provides crisis intervention in both English and Spanish, as well as referrals to local services and shelters for victims of partner or spousal abuse. You can also contact the Stand Against Domestic Violence Crisis Hotline at 888-215-5555. Thank you all for those resources, and they're also available on our website if needed. So, Sashiella, echoing the sort of back-and-forth of your father's character throughout the piece, you take us on quite the vivid back-and-forth journey between Brooklyn and Guyana and back again. And over and over, you tell your story in non-chronological order. And in fact, in both countries, you set scenes in many homes and multiple apartments in Brooklyn and your house in Guyana and your aunt's house and, of course, the pawn shop, which we also see. And we see glimpses of what living in that place was like without a shower, 
sharing a space with rats, hiding behind curtains so that customers didn't know that you were there. Can you tell us about what it was like living in the pawn shop? How long were you there? Did a lot of people know that you were there? And why was it important for you to showcase that in your story? Wow. Well, thank you for recognizing it. Um, I believe we lived in the pawn shop for almost two years. Mm-hmm. It was the most stable place we've lived in since really? moving here, given its unstable wow. conditions. Right. Wow. Um, since coming here, we lived in quite a few places, um, but the pawn shop is the one place that we've lived in the longest, mm-hmm. um, besides the place that I live in now. Um, only a few people knew that we were living there, and that's family members. They knew our financial situation. They knew my dad's situation. So they were aware that we were living there. And what else was the other question? There's one more question. Uh, what was the importance of showcasing that? I think it was important because they may be other students going through the same thing mm-hmm. that feels like, hey, I'm going through a crisis and I don't know how to speak up about it. I don't know if it's even worthy of speaking up about. Mm -hmm. um, So it's important to not only get my voice out there, but to open up a new doorway for other students or other people going through the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, That's very true. And it's also cliche, but there is a light besides, well, there's life outside of where you're living now. Mm -hmm. So it's not really about where you're living. It's about what else you're doing with your life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. I like that. It's Mm -hmm. like your life, isn't always your life will not always be what it is right now yes Mm -hmm. exactly and it's not confined by where you live Mm -hmm. but how you live it and when you like look at back on these times like even in the piece you never say like it was horrible or something like like that you 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 just describe it you don't tell us it was horrible you describe Mm -hmm. the situation Mm -hmm. and even then it's like the connotation is kind of like yeah these conditions were kind of difficult but it was never from a negative place right. necessarily. Right. It, I mean, there couldn't be a negative place because I was appreciative that I still had a roof over my head. Right. Mm-hmm. It was never, oh my God, I need to get out of here. But it's like, <laughs> where, where would I have mm-hmm. gone? Right. So yeah. this is home yeah. right now. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this one line in your story that I particularly loved. It was about how you were 15 and suddenly you had the skill of running a pawn shop. Mm-hmm. But where am I going to put, put that on my resume? Yeah. Yeah. I loved that mm-hmm. line because it had this, it sounded slightly sarcastic and also kind of sardonic, but it also really like eye opening into your situation. Like 15 year old running a pawn shop, where are you going to put that on your resume? Mm-hmm. That How just do you re- even put that on there? I know. Right. <laughs> I just yeah. put everything into perspective and I love that line. Thank mm-hmm. you. That was a great line. Thanks. So this portrait piece about your father is structured with these vignettes or these like fragmented slice of life moments that each start with the repeating sentence, I am a family man, he loved saying. Now, it's said right before moments, like before your dad takes you and your brother away from your aunt to live with him, which you're clearly happy about in the story. And then when you all go out for pizza and when you do other fun family stuff together. But it's also said when you discuss his gambling and when he leaves his two young children, including you, to run the pawn shop for him alone. So can you talk a little bit about this rhetorical choice to repeat this line, regardless of the type of content you shared? And as a part of that, did you see your father as a family man in these moments, despite his behaviors? Or was this a reflection of what your father believed being a family man meant? Well, there's two things. 
Okay. There is um, him actually reflecting who he thought he was. Mm-hmm. And there's, I also opened each vignette that way because as a child, that's what I grew up hearing. And that's right. why I yeah. grew up believing. So mm-hmm. reading it, I wanted readers to also believe it at first. Mm-hmm. So when his actions proved otherwise, they also got the feeling that I felt when I um, when I discovered that he probably wasn't as a family oh, man as he thought he right. was. Mm-hmm. Like the illusion was being shattered. Yes. Yeah. Just like you. Yes. Okay. That was a really nice. good effect oh. to that piece. Yeah. That's so intense. And yeah, like, wow. and now you feel it when you go yeah. back through each of the sections, mm-hmm. like, oh, like he's saying this thing, but it's really hypocritical now. Oh. Right. Mm-hmm. And what it must be like growing up, like believing that. Exactly. Like, no, this, this is what a family man is. Like, that's just how it is. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as we continue to look at your story, um, as part of your nuanced exploration of your father's character, you talk a lot throughout the piece about culture and its influence in many ways, from how your father says film instead of film to the casual nature of having a large blade, a cutlass, in the house, to the lovely smell of your mom's baking on Christmas morning, to even the societal view of cheating. How do you feel your culture has impacted you? Specifically, do you feel that it plays a role at all in the way that you viewed your father or in the way that your views have shifted? Do you feel like adapting to the New York culture has affected your views? I definitely feel New York has helped shifted my views on my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Growing up in Guyana, it's kind of like your parents are who they are, so you have to accept them. Mm-hmm. Right Here, it's kind of the mm-hmm. opposite. You don't have to accept that that they're maybe this bad person or they have bad qualities. You don't have to stick with it. You can <coughs> choose to either eliminate or distance yourself from that negativity and actually do whatever you want, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, While back home, it's kind of like you really have to accept them. They're your dad. And I still have family members who are very like, yeah, um, he's your dad. So you kind of just have to accept that and move on and move Mm -hmm. forward. Mm -hmm. So New York has definitely affected the way I perceive things now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's for the better. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because you don't just accept it as is. Yeah. Like there's more to it. Mm. That's definitely cool. Yeah, I mean, that moment in the story when your dad is asking your mother to cut his toenail and she says no, oh, and then he goes and gets his cutlass and then he asks again, cut my toenail, Helen, while holding it. There's just something so really chilling about that. Like, oh, like yeah. I, I got chills when yeah. I read that. And, oh, and then, and then that line again about your mother's arm after he mm-hmm. abused her right. and like with the cuts and the scrapes. But then there, but then you wrote something about how her arm wasn't bleeding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was just so powerful. Mm-hmm. I oh, like, you. yeah. I also found it kind of telling how when he went to get the cutlass and threatened your mom with it, that he, he asked your brother, I believe mm-hmm. to go and get it right. mm-hmm. as opposed to just like go getting it for himself. He just told, like in any Guyanese family, you right. always get like, oh, go get this for me. Go get yep. that for me. Like whether it's your daughter or your son. But then like to see something that's like a weapon being asked for to like tell your son, go that get child, me my cutlass. Yeah. And then to see it happen. I can only imagine what like your brother felt in that moment too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's like an accessory to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And it's also like kind of, I've, I view it as kind of like maybe this this is what we do in a way, or at right, least like right. it's kind of like a passing on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because he chose the son specifically, right? Yeah. Specifically, like he didn't ask you; he asked right. specifically the son to go get like 
this instrument to keep a woman in line. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's, that, like, parallel, like, n- noticing that is, like, very, very jarring. Mm-hmm. And in continuing our conversation about, like, intimate partner violence and, you know, kind of, like, the culture of Caribbean families, because my culture, I'm also Guyanese and Trinidadian, so I kind of know where you're coming from. So, according to the study, how safe are Caribbean homes for women and children? Sutton and Alvarez find that, on average, Caribbean respondents were statistically more likely than Latin Americans, difference is... 10.8 percent points to approve of or understand hitting a woman under certain circumstances some of this is shown throughout your piece as well where we see those intense scenes of like again like your father asking your brother to bring the cutlass to hit your mom and stuff like that so do you believe this accurately reflects the violence women experience across the caribbean and can you tell us a little bit about like how from your personal experience on this topic is viewed in caribbean households or maybe even just guyanese households specifically Okay. Um, so Caribbean wise, I'm not really sure. I can't really speak on right. that. Mm-hmm. But based on what I know from Guyana, I mm-hmm. think the statistics may be a little bit lower than it it actually is. Right. I think um, partner violence or interrelationship violence mm-hmm. actually occurs more often than people right. would like to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, it was normal for you to be living there and seeing your neighbors or hearing them argue and even hearing some kind of abuse going on mm-hmm. and to turn a blind eye. Mm-hmm. The blind eye, you don't turn a blind eye until someone is actually in a life or death situation. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty normal for people to be in relationships that aren't healthy. Right. And do you think like it changes like when they move to like like how your dad moved to America and stuff? Do you believe like those are the same behaviors he exhibits now being in America? I think his behavior is kind of a altered just because he's in new york right he knows. while in guyana it's kind of the policing system is different mm-hmm. um you can't bribe a police here that's mm-hmm. even a charge in guyana you can um and once you have connections that's all that matters you can really right. get away with a lot so oh, i didn't know that yeah i didn't i didn't think about the 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 side. difference of yeah. like the laws mm-hmm. yeah like the enforcement of it is kind of what allows for it to happen exactly mm-hmm. interesting all right, and lastly, if anything, what do you want your readers to take from your story? What do I want my readers to take from my story? Um, a few things, that it's okay to live in a place that's not stable mm-hmm. and that it's not um, traditional, that's, that's basically not whatever normal is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. um, I also want them to be aware that um, they shouldn't accept things for what they are, you should question mm-hmm. things and question whether you deserve that or mm-hmm. it's healthy for you to be in certain situations right. and put yourself mm-hmm. first, not the title of who's doing the act. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the title of father shouldn't matter. The title of mother should not matter. Right. right. Yeah. Your title matters more. Mm-hmm. I think that's one thing that people do is that they, they categorize people mm-hmm. or they give authority to other people and still remain in <coughs> uncomfortable situations and that's not healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what I want people to take away. That's awesome. Thanks. That's so powerful. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. Can we ask how you are like now? Like where are you at right now? Do you feel more stable? Like Sure. Um housing wise, definitely more stable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so glad. Um I I like I mentioned in the story, there's not much of a relationship there and he kind of wants a relationship, but right. personally speaking, I would have just 
be going back down into a rabbit hole that I just crawled out of. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel mentally more stable as well, just because I don't have that negative um, negative aspect in my life anymore. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely more stable on all levels. That's good to know. Yeah. That good. is really good to know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, thank you, Sashiava. Yeah, thank, thank you so, so much for you. having me. This piece is by new author to Life Out Loud, Amanda Carrera Flynn. Amanda is a senior at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and she was born and raised in Queens, but spent a few years living in Bolivia. After switching her major multiple times, she decided to major in English and minor in creative writing. She hopes to continue her education in either English or computer science in graduate school. Her hobbies include watching cartoons, anime, soap, ASMR videos, laughing with her friends, and writing her own fiction and nonfiction stories. When she isn't studying, she likes to spend time with her wife, Deanna, and their dog, Maggie. Thank you, Karen. Let's take a listen to Amanda's piece entitled, Holy Water is Thicker Than Blood. I didn't bother to welcome my cousin Tiffany back from Florida last night, which makes bumping into her in the kitchen first thing in the morning a bit uncomfortable, at least for me. Hey, she squeals as she throws her arms around me. I slowly hug her back and slightly pat her head. She steps around me and starts making her oatmeal banana pancakes. How are you? She asks me in a peppy voice. It's too early for her to have so much energy. I'm good. How about you? I ask. My voice cracks as it awakens along with me. I'm good. Glory to God. She practically sings. Oh, nice. I utter. I open the fridge to see if there's anything I can make in less than five minutes. I settle on Lucky Charms. Tiffany, who I also call Whiff or Whiffy for short, and I have lived in the same house most of our lives. Her mom owns it. My mother used to rent. For at least 15 years, my aunt and her would live upstairs, and me, my mom, and my brother would live downstairs, or vice versa. I can't remember why we would switch. What never changed, though, was our clubhouse, a tiny room-slash-walk-in closet full of dolls in the upstairs apartment. Tiffany and I would play in there almost every day with our Barbie and Polly Pocket dolls. We would have little families and little fake weddings with our dolls. One time, she dropped a snow globe in the clubhouse, and it shattered. She held my hand as my aunt tried to get the small piece of glass out of my leg, despite me being mad at her for dropping the globe in the first place. Even outside of the closet clubhouse, we did a lot of things together. We went to Bolivia almost every summer, and we always went to church together. One year, we went on a week-long retreat together. Her best friend Ava and I bonded during that retreat. We shared something that most would never bring up at a church. We both liked girls. Ashamed, we'd cried into each other's arms. How dare the devil try to pollute our souls with this sin? We prayed for each other and then had others pray over us. Finally, it was time to tell Tiffany. Tiffany and I sat on my bed. She had just come back from staying over Ava's house for the weekend. Whiff, I have something to tell you, I said that day. Tears rolled down my face. What is it, she asked. She grabbed my hands, concern illustrated on her face. Ava and I, we talked and, um, we uh we wanted to tell you that um 
we both like girls and we prayed about it, but we didn't know what to say or how to tell you, I said. She took in the news and then looked at me with pity in her eyes. I'm so sorry, she said, hugging me. We'll get through this together. She held my 16-year-old hands as she prayed. With all her might, she prayed for me to be cured. <sighs> College students now. We sit across from each other in silence. Spoons and forks scrape against our plateware. Tension lingers between us, making it hard to genuinely smile at each other. We try, though. Anything new? She asks me. Nothing, I say. A lot was new, but nothing she would want to hear. I pull up my phone and go on Instagram. We used to fight about who was sitting at the table first and who was distracting who from studying. When our mothers lost their job due to the company they both worked for moving to India, my aunt and my cousin moved from the upstairs apartment into the downstairs one with my mother, my brother, and me to save money. It quickly became overcrowded. We'd fight over who finished the milk or who took the other one's shirt, but we always fixed everything in what felt like two seconds. The fights? They got harder to fix when I started dating girls, though. The summer before she left for college, I told her. I told her I was dating a girl, and after that, a lot changed. She barely spoke to me. One day, we were in the kitchen, and were both making ourselves something to eat. I had to fart, so I did, like I always did. She quickly turned to me and looked at me in disgust. How could you do that, she yelled. Do what, I asked. Fart, that is so disrespectful. I stared at her, wondering if she was joking. We had lived together in the same house all of our lives, and this was the first time she had ever said something about a fart. What are you saying? I literally fart all the time, I said. But you did it by my food, she said. My fart did not turn left, then go up to the counter where your food is, I argued. Besides, you burp all the time. Farts are worse than burps, she exclaimed. Are you fucking kidding me, I said. Don't curse at me, she screamed. My aunt came into the kitchen. Amanda, Christians shouldn't curse, my aunt said in a kind voice, trying to calm the situation. I'm not a Christian. A silence hung in the kitchen. Maybe for a second. Maybe for a minute. I don't know. Why? My cousin broke the silence. Why are you not a Christian, she screamed. Because I'm gay, I screamed. Silence. I said it. I said it out loud, even though it wasn't completely true. I wasn't sure what I was. I was still trying to figure it out. One thing was certain, though. I was not straight. It was also certain that Tiffany would get up from the table whenever I would sit, too, and that she would roll her eyes at me if I ever mentioned Jen. I was tired of living like this. Tiffany's eyes were wide, and she moved her eyes to her mother and back at me, signaling that my aunt was there and that the secret was out now. I don't care anymore, I cried in response. You have been so nasty to me ever since I told you about Jen. I can't take it anymore. What did I do to you? I grabbed onto the counter. The sudden lift of weight from my psyche felt like I'd let go of a deep breath that I held for years. Tiffany's face fell. She looked defeated. 
You know what I believe in, she said, softly crying now. I just want you to go to heaven. She wrapped her arms around me. My aunt came and hugged me too, also crying. Stop worrying about me, I'd said that day. How can I not worry about you? You're like my sister, she said. The three of us stood there crying. After we finished hugging, Tiffany said she would do better. I was so thankful. But nothing changed since that fight. I remember the first time she came back for vacation. She had completed her first semester in Florida. We were sitting at the table. She went on and on about how much she loved it, and I was happy for her. But I also needed advice. Whiff, uh, I need your advice, I said. Angela really pissed me off, and I want to tell her. I went to the event at church that Mike was hosting, and she... What are you doing? In the middle of my sentence, she had gotten up and started going to her room. I don't want to gossip, she said, slamming the door in my face when I had went to follow her. I'd stood there with my mouth open for a while, knocking on her door. When she answered it, she was already on the phone with a friend from Florida, from her new school, a small, unknown Christian college. I haven't seen you in months, and you don't want to talk to me? I asked. I told you. I don't like gossiping, she said as though I was a child who had to be told not to touch the hot stove. I wasn't gossiping. I just wanted to ask what I should say. <sighs> I really like your hair, she says in between bites of pancakes. Thanks, I like it too, I say. My long red curly hair is up in a bun, exposing the left side of my head that is shaved off. What made you do it, she asks. Nothing, I just felt like it, I respond. I barely look at her as I pick out the cereal part and leave the marshmallows floating in the milk. She watches me as I complete my routine. I eat the cereal part first, then I drink the milk, leaving the soggy marshmallows in the bowl. And then I start organizing the types of marshmallows left. Blue here, green to the left, more pink than usual. You still do that, she asks, practically laughing. Of course I do, I say. She sits in the same spot where I sat that one summer. I spent hours on the computer, searching things on Google like, can I be queer and a Christian? In her seat, I finally found a video online by this kid who at the time was my age, preaching to a church about the Bible and homosexuality. He said it was possible and that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is about gang rape rather than homosexuality, that Jesus never even spoke of it like he did of divorce. It was an hour long, but I hung on to every word. It was like being baptized all over again. Excitedly, I told Tiffany about it and sent it to her phone. Can you watch it? I asked. Yeah, sure, she said. The rest of the summer, she would sit on the couch with her laptop and watch Criminal Minds and Zootopia for the fifth time, but she never put on the video. Hey, Whiff, I'd ask. Did you watch the video? Not yet, she'd say, never looking up from her computer. Are you going to? Eventually, she gave me my answer. Are you ever going to watch it? I'd ask. She took a deep breath and then exhaled slowly, as if she was calming herself down. Amanda, no video I watch is going to make me change my mind, she said. There is a possibility that the Bible had been misinterpreted, but you won't even look at it? Not even for me? I'd asked. 
I tried holding back my tears. The Bible was not misinterpreted, she said like she was condemning me to hell herself. I looked at her that day. She had the same face as a girl I once called my sister, but she was different, someone I couldn't recognize. Well, I said back, I think it was. I turned and walked out of the room. So, have you met any guys at school? I asked, almost done with the marshmallow game, anxious to break our silence. Yeah, there are a lot of cute guys, but I'm just there to study. Besides, we're not allowed to date anyone our first year. She says this as though it's totally normal for college to make dating rules. What the hell? That's so stupid. I can't help it. No, it's not. It's so that we can put all our focus in our ministry, she says. I still think it's stupid. My phone vibrates. I look at my notifications, and it's from a dating app called Her, a Tinder for queer women. I got a match. A few weeks ago, I matched with someone who I recognized. I looked at her picture. She looked exactly the same. Short hair, glasses, same style of clothing. It was Ava, our friend back from church camp. Her profile said she's a lesbian. I messaged her right away. Is this Ava from a retreat called BWAT? She replied, yes, oh my gosh, I knew I recognized you. I'd always wondered what happened to Ava and whether she was ever able to come out. She told me that while she's not out to her church or her family life, she's out in her school. As we caught up, I asked why she and Tiffany stopped being friends. I figured it was because she lived so far and they grew apart. But no. She then explained how they had been in love. How Tiffany and Ava had sometimes talked about being together. How when they would have sleepovers, they'd cuddle. How once in a while, they'd even kiss. But Tiffany always made Ava feel bad for just being alive, she told me. She'd blamed Ava for causing her to sin and eventually cut ties. Ava said Tiffany was her first heartbreak. <sighs> How's school, she asks. Her food almost done. Good. How's school for you, I ask. It's really good. My professors are so good in the classes. She rants. I eventually stop listening, offering the occasional nice and wow. I'm just not interested in the social life of a school that had students gathering in their common areas to watch the election play out and cheer every time a state turned red, especially Florida. I'm not interested in hearing about a place that many Christians have left because their hateful version of Christianity is hurtful and damaging. What classes are you taking? I force myself to ask, genuinely curious as to what classes they teach. She lists a bunch of classes that have to do with the Bible. No English or math. Don't you guys have gen eds, I ask. No, we're all here because we want to serve the Lord. So our classes are preparing us for ministry, she replies. Oh, wow, I say. I couldn't fathom a school that doesn't make you take science or history. We eat the rest of our breakfast in silence. Okay, well, um, I'll see you later, she says as she gets up and leaves. I finished my food, feeling just as alone as when she was here. Wow. 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 
Well, what a piece. Thank you so much, Amanda, for being here and for sharing this pretty personal piece with us. Well, thank you for having me. So your piece is driven by flashbacks you experienced within um, this one morning during breakfast you have with your cousin Tiffany when she visits. Mm -hmm. And you show clear juxtapositions between your cousin and yourself from her enthusiasm and your calmness and from your absence of making a religious allusions to everyday life to her living by them. It seems like like the only similarities that we see are the Polly Pockets and the Barbies until you kind of hint at the fact that she at one point liked girls. So why did you choose to write in this way and what point were you trying to make? Honestly, I really don't know why I chose to write it like that. Um, it kind of, well, I really wanted to write about the fart scene for a really long time because, <laughs> of course, <laughs> honestly, yeah, obviously, obviously. <laughs> Um, because it like even though at the time it was like a really crappy situation, like I look back at it now and I kind of laugh. Mm -hmm. So, um, to then I just decided to start writing about like more backstory into that and how, um, you know, she was just very religious and she grew into her relationship with God in a way, and I kind of just fell back. So it was kind of like the more. I started realizing my sexuality the more I started um, falling away from the church, whereas the more she started realizing her sexuality, she kind of used it as a cover. And so she kind of used it to, in a way, wash her sexuality away. So um, I think the reason why, besides you know me wanting to write the fart scene, the reason why I um, wrote it that way is because... Um, even though we're so, so different, like at, there was a point where, you know, we were best friends and we we're so, so similar. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. That's so really interesting. So it kind of like just shows, it kind of like emphasizes more of like the drifting away kind of ness. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Like she, to... yeah. So we lived together in the same house for so many years and she was mm -hmm. basically my best friend. Yeah. Even though when we were really, really little, like, you know, we used to get into like these stupid fights. Yeah. But yeah, we, we were basically mm -hmm. sisters. We lived together. You know, we spent, even even though she lived upstairs and I lived downstairs or vice versa, like, we always used to go upstairs and see each other and hang out and, like, watch TV and, like, play with dolls or, you know, just all this. So, it, yeah, it's weird how, like, we were both similar, but we both chose different paths. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that happens in life. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. I think that's one of my favorite parts of this piece, though. It's that kind of different directions people take mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then that one like like hint of a similarity at yeah. the end, and then it ends up kind of not being i don't know it, I, I almost at first thought it would be something to bond over and then it kind of ends up not being that or at least from what we saw because it ended kind of abruptly yeah mm -hmm. yeah so in this piece the main strain is between you your cousin and as our title demonstrates her ties to religion outweighing your familial bond and memories as kids and you show your aunt saying, Christians don't curse, as though it's something indoctrinated in her as well. And also crying and hugging you in the same way your cousin does when you announce that you're gay. So I'm curious, since we didn't see how she acted later on, or if your mom got the news as well, was she also religious? And did this behavior differ from how your cousin acted with you in the years that followed? Um, so it took a really long time for me to officially tell my mother. Um, my mom 
was very religious. Um, she's the one who actually brought me into the church when I was about eight years old. And um, for a very long time, like when there was anything on TV that, you know, hinted at any kind of like queerness, like she would literally go ill and turn off the TV. Mm-hmm. And like one time, like when I started realizing that I do like girls, um, I asked her, I was like, oh, what would you do if my brother was gay mm-hmm. and she'd be like oh uh i wouldn't talk to him none of my kids are gonna be gay and i'm just like oh yeah 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 meanwhile later that day <laughs> so um you know so i kind of um it was if i had told her then i probably would have been treated in a very negative way but um my mom recently went back to school and she started studying to be a social worker and she's been exposed to different kinds of uh living situations of different minorities like with queer minorities and like Mm. you know all kinds of people of color and stuff like that and my mom has become like this huge social justice warrior plus as well like i sent her the video (laughs) 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 yeah it's really cute um Plus, um, I sent her the video that I mentioned briefly in the story because mm. my brother is an atheist. So I was like, mm. and the, one of the reasons he is an atheist is because he doesn't think that the Bible should be treating queer people in that way or, you know. So mm. I sent my mom the video for my brother when it was actually for her. Mm, so right. she watched it. And then plus going back to school and getting really getting educated, it made the process of telling her easier. And so um, she was very, it it was more like a shock to her because she was like, I never got any hints. Like, you're so girly. And I'm just like, mom, that doesn't mean anything. (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, but she was very, um, she was very nice and she was very accepting about it. So that was, that was really great. That's so nice. (laughs) that's something you never like hear about is that like the the power on sometimes i don't know like sometimes um people from smaller towns um when someone goes to college or something in like a big city they're like the city made you gay yeah (laughs) so this is kind of like when really it's just like the education and like sitting with yourself that makes mm-hmm. you realize things that you didn't get to sit with yourself previously. And I guess that's the same thing for your mom is like, she got to really sit with like new knowledge about new people mm-hmm. and realize like, Hey, not only is this like a very like real thing, but it's also very real for someone close to me. Right. Yeah. So that like, Oh, that's so cool. I, I just know. like that. <laughs> yeah. And on the note of reactions to your sexuality and what, what really sticks out in this piece is kind of the the lack of response when learning, as we touched on before, that your cousin had kind of a relationship with your friend Ava. Um, you learned about this and didn't bring it up in that moment. And though you had every right to probably call her a hypocrite or any word in the book mm-hmm. after how she treated you, in your coming out, she kind of forced your hand and you got riled up enough to say it in front of your aunt. So was it a conscious decision not to have the same thing happen to her? Or if so, can you talk about, and if so, can you talk about the importance of kind of letting people come out in their own time? Yeah, I didn't call her out on it uh, in the story for a couple of reasons. I feel like um, it wasn't my place in a way, Um, even though she wasn't the best to me. um, 
I mean, obviously, of course, internally, I was like, what the hell? Like, what? And she, what? And I was so angry at her. But um, in my piece, I, I just feel like in my piece, I just didn't feel like I should have that reaction. But, um, you know, also kind of growing up and realizing different things. Um, it's really sad that you know she she is a certain way she she has like a certain type of queerness that she does not allow herself to embrace and you know I kind of feel bad for her Mm -hmm. it's really you know it's sad um that and I was even thinking like what if she's not like super happy about me because maybe what if she's just jealous that I can I'm able to do that I have the confidence enough to do that and she can't and so I kind of put it into that perspective where it's like, you know, maybe she's just not comfortable with herself yet or m- maybe she never will be. And that's even sadder. Yeah. So, yeah, I didn't call her out. <laughs> I guess that like in in some kind of aspect, she could maybe get a little lucky in that sense, because now there's a lot of like Christians who do embrace like mm-hmm. the queer identity and who say, yes, I'm gay, I'm lesbian, I'm this, but I also love God so very much. So hopefully you know she could end up in that kind of aspect where yes she wants to stay in her religion and i get that like i totally get that but at the same time it it's it's so sad when you have to like hide part of yourself from yourself yeah so hopefully keep her in prayer but of course but it's actually really funny because um i was about to write a piece about gay christian churches for Mm -hmm. my second workshop in professor madrazo's class i was about to do that but then i went in a different direction just because i i didn't know i wasn't confident in that specific piece right but um there are quite a few um lgbtq accepting churches not tolerating but accepting mm-hmm. so yeah. that's a big difference a huge yeah. difference yeah. huge difference because like i've also read in some churches you know like if you google gay churches and some of them come up but the reviews are like they say they're gay accepting but they're really not yeah, they mm-hmm. seek to convert or yeah like change you heal yeah, yeah they they bring you in to try to change who you are and that's that's not i don't even know if that's tolerating yeah, <laughs> at I that mean, point I, that's I not so. no that's not, not even so. christian at that <laughs> <Yeah>. point. <laughs> that's not even exactly. christian so it's like you know but it's hard it's not hard but it's harder yeah. to find a church for you when there isn't that many um options either mm-hmm. and, there are yeah, and there are some. There are quite a few to be more, but yeah, right now it's limited. It's true. Mm-hmm. There are more, but you know, it's not as much. Mm-hmm. Like I can go to the like, let's say I was wasn't queer, I could go to the, any church and they'd accept me. Yeah, even if you like did alcohol or like abused yeah. somebody, they would be like, oh yeah, totally. Yeah. But like as soon as you're like, oh yeah, I'm queer, this mm-hmm. is I think just like uh huh. <laughs> I once had a friend um who I mentioned briefly that I might might like girls but um and she was like you know like I can't be your friend Oof. and I was like okay but like when I'm smoking cigarettes and smoking weed mm-hmm. and drinking yeah. mm-hmm. until I'm like blackout drunk like you're gonna stick by me but like you're gonna be my friend but this is what like the fact that like you know I might be a certain person and I might you know like certain people that's what's gonna like yeah get yeah. you to not I be my mind, friend yeah. mm-hmm. so 
it's just really crappy. So that's the fear oh, that people have. I feel like, like that acceptance. Am I gonna be the same way? Will I still be your friend? Still be in the family and stuff like that. So that mm-hmm. fear of like mm-hmm. not Maybe being knowing contagious. exactly mm-hmm. that fear of like you're what you're gay. How <laughs> like that confusion mm-hmm. can like scare people away, and that's like a fear a lot of people have with coming out. Mm-hmm. So lastly, what would you like listeners to take away from your story? Um, oof. It's not as long as the other ones. Though. Yeah. <laughs> this one's a lot easier to process, but at the same time, yeah, it's, it's harder to answer. Um, I think, I think maybe to, um, I once heard somebody say that uh, it's also like a queer um, social media person basically saying like in their store, like in their eyes, they are the good people and we're the bad people because they don't know in a way like they are the heroes of their own story mm-hmm. and they believe they truly believe that queer people will go to hell and they truly truly out of the goodness of their ha- their hearts sometimes will try to change you but they don't realize that it's so much more damaging it's not that they're you know most people most people not everybody and i think um it's not that they're trying to um be mean to you or yeah do harm it's that they're trying to save you. And so my cousin, she she didn't purposely um she wasn't purposely like awful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just that she like this is what she believed in. And so mm-hmm. it's not that um a lot of people just don't basically um you know, even though people hurt us, it's not because of the bad like the badness and the evilness of their heart. It's right. It's that they truly believe that what they're doing is right. And, um, you know, my cousin truly believes what she's doing is right. And she's doing it to herself right. enough. Yeah. And so not everybody is a bad person. And I think forgiveness goes a long way. Well, with that, thank you, Amanda. Thank you so thank much. Thank you for this story. Thank you so much for this interview. Oh, thank you. Well, that concludes our fifth and last episode of the fourth season, Family Ties. We are all so excited to bring you new stories in the coming months, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear from in the contemporary storytelling scene. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get some behind-the-scenes action. We'd like to thank everyone who helped make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you loved these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good night!